The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Good evening. I hope that you're well tonight. So tonight we're going to be in the first eight verses of this gospel, and you're familiar with this gospel. You know it. Um, uh, it, 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 So we're going to talk about John the Baptist or the herald, the one who came so that the world will know that Jesus or Messiah would be coming. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, my Christian walk, I, I had, didn't have a church background. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of you will understand what I'm about to say, is my only exposure to the gospel was Charlie Brown Christmas. It's about... Charlie Brown and the little tree and kind of trying to find out what Christmas is all about, obviously an animated feature by uh, uh, Charles Schultz. And there comes a point in time where Linus says, Charlie Brown, this isn't what Christmas is all about. And so then he steps out onto the stage in an auditorium, and I believe he like looks up and says, lights please, and the lights come down. This is my exposure to to Jesus as a young man, a very young man. And Linus begins to say, for unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And even though I didn't have a church background or any knowledge of the scriptures at that time, I always remember having a sense of emotion, of deep, profound emotion at the declaration of that truth by a little animated guy. That was my experience. But 44 years ago, at the age of 22, my faith journey, my faith walk, started when I articulated repentance. I didn't really know that I was praying. I was by myself. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. I was working swing shift at the nuclear plant. And for a number of months, I had a profound sense that I was lost. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that I felt like I was lost, but now that as I look back, that's what I was sensing. That's what I was feeling. And I yielded to, very late at night, early in the morning, obviously. I got off work at 12.30. I remember kneeling down, and first thing that came into my mind is, Danny, you don't know how to pray. And I was right. I was 100% right. But then I began to say to God, I am sorry. And over the next couple of minutes, I don't know really how long it took, I said, I'm sorry for this sin, and I'm sorry for that sin, and I'm sorry for this sin. And, and then something that happened to me at that moment that doesn't, that doesn't today and didn't back then Suddenly, emotion from within began to well up, and I actually began to weep. I was by myself, but I began to weep. And I remember that when I opened my eyes, there was right in front of me this, this dove. Not, not literally, but a dove was, it was a vision. And I remember feeling clean inside 44 years ago. I want you to know that that moment of repentance has led to a lifetime where I daily get up early in the morning and I ask God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. 
See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And when I do that, perhaps in that moment, maybe a resentment or a point of unforgiveness comes to my mind. And as it does, I simply say, Lord, I confess this sin. I repent and I turn from it. And I ask you to forgive me. And I need to tell you that that, that, that what takes but a handful of minutes has revolutionized my life. It has caused anxiety in my life to subside. It has caused me or allowed me, if you will, it would certainly be a luxury in the day in which we live, to have a clear conscience. And it follows me through the balance of my day. If, if a thought or an idea or an attitude even comes into my mind, I ask God, I confess that it's there, and then I ask God to remove it. So repentance begins our faith walk, repentance throughout our faith walk. Repentance does not make Danny Ramos feel bad. It allows me to be free. Repentance does not make Danny Ramos feel bad. It allows Danny Ramos to be free. Our takeaway for tonight, it should be up on the screen, is repentance may initially hurt, but then it heals. I don't believe that God intends for you and I to carry shame or guilt or fear associated with sin. In the same way that Jesus would on the night that he would be betrayed by a friend, in the same way that he would come and wash the feet of his disciples, I believe that we have an opportunity to regularly be washed by the blood of Christ. It's what communion is, is symbolic of. So repentance may initially hurt, but it, then it heals. So, so I'm going to begin with, with an introduction to the Gospel of Mark tonight. And, and I need to tell you that on the front end, there's a lot. And I'm going to give you a lot. I don't in necessarily intend for you to remember this all. But we begin our time in, in Mark's Gospel by looking at the author. Who, who is the man who wrote uh, this Gospel or this book? We're going to look at the book itself. There's characteristics about the Gospel of Mark that are unique to Mark. And then the setting. When you hear the word setting, think about where it was written from and to whom the Gospel was written. Well, let's begin with the author. The first mention of Mark in the Bible is in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Acts 12, 12. Where Luke writes, when he, speaking of Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. John, it's imp important for you to know that, that John is Mark's Hebrew name. And Mark is his Greek name. So when we look at who he's writing to, it's important to see why he uses the name Mark. Where many had gathered together and were praying. And the, the backstory to this verse is that Peter had been in prison and then he was miraculously released. So he immediately goes to a home where likely the church in Jerusalem or one of the homes where the church in Jerusalem met. And there they were praying for him. In Acts chapter 13, we read that Mar of Mark abandoning Paul and Barnabas while they were on their first missionary journey. 
In fact, Paul and Barnabas will eventually part ways over Barnabas insisting that his cousin Mark be included on their second missionary endeavor, and that's in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, if you're taking notes. But I need to include this, because you see, at the very end of Paul's life, tradition tells us he's in the Mamertine prison. He knows he's going to be executed. He writes to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, from his second letter to Timothy, and he says in chapter 4, verse 11, Luke alone is with me. That means all of his co-workers, all of his friends have left him. I would even use a stronger word. They have abandoned him. Get, listen to these words, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. We believe that Mark received his account of Jesus' ministry. I want you to think about Jesus' teaching, his sharing of truth with the multitudes, as well as his miracles, as well as his miracles from Peter. Some believe that he was Peter's convert. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter writes, Mark, my son, meaning that he was his spiritual son. There was a very close connection. Paul uses the same terminology in referencing Timothy, my son. Some of you in this room tonight have spiritual sons. Some of you have spiritual daughters, spiritual fathers, and spiritual mothers. These are those who you have a connection with, you have an affection for. I oftentimes think of my friends that I would never know some of my dearest friends if it wasn't for Jesus. That our connection, the thing that has brought our lives together is Jesus, and, and, and that is the nature of the relationship between Peter and Mark and Paul and Timothy. I want to read to you a quote from an early church father. He is, he is quoting the apostle John. I, I hope I'm not giving you too much. I'm going to slow, slow intentionally. But this is a quote of the apostle John. He, speaking of Mark, wrote down accurately as much as he could remember of Peter's words, which the latter had adapted to the needs of the moment. And that's quotas from Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis, and it was shared in 120 AD. Mark would listen to Peter tell the story about Jesus. Mark would then, as they traveled together, ask questions for clarity. All of that is important as you look into your Bible and read his gospel. He hears from Peter the accounts of Jesus. We also see Peter's influence in the use of Aramaic phrases. In Mark 3.17, we have Boagernus the sons of thunder. That was given to James and to John, the two brothers. In Mark chapter 5, verse 14, we have Talitha Kumi, which means in Aramaic, little girl, I say to you, arise. And this was in Jairus' home after his daughter had passed. And yet these were, this is what Peter remembered. 
Then there's also in Mark chapter 7, verse 11, the term Corban, which means devoted to God as a gift. And then with the healing of the death man, in Mark 7, 34, Jesus said, Ephatha, which means be opened. So this man, he, Jesus literally, uh, this is probably not the most warming or affectionate thing, but Jesus spits, sticks his fingers in the man's ears, and then speaks the command, Ephatha, or be open. And then lastly, in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, there's the word Abba, which is an affectionate and tender term or title for father. It's interesting that in Mark's gospel, he refuses to identify himself. I think maybe the, his original audience would have known him or at least known of him and his relationship to Peter. So next we go on to the book. It was likely written around the mid-60s making it the earliest of the Gospels. And you know, you're sitting here tonight saying, Danny, why do I need to know this? Because scholars want to look at manuscripts and they want to find those that are closest to the occasion of which they're writing Jesus' ministry in order to support accuracy. And you and I are sitting here tonight, we may not need that. We may, we may say, well, you know, I'm quite confident that the Spirit inspired Mark. Well, both things are true. It contains Peter's first-person details, such as the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6, 39. It says, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups, listen to this, on the green grass. Only Peter would have known this, or somebody who had been present. In Mark 5, 13, we're told that there were about 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. I mean, I know the story, I know the significance of the story, that's a whole lot of pigs, but Peter would have known because he was there. He was present. Then when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand in Mark 3, 5, we're told something very interesting because the man is positioned. We'll go over the story in a couple of weeks. The man is positioned within the synagogue. Jesus understands that the religious there, leaders are there to see if he will break the Sabbath. And he asks the man to come forward. Now, to have a withered hand is something that you would have probably worn long sleeves or kept, kept away, you know, because it was a source of shame. And then Jesus asks a question to the religious leaders. He says, is it the right thing to do to give life or death on the Sabbath? And then they refuse to answer. And it says that he looks, it's, it's as though he pans the religious leaders and it says that he looked at them, that's the Pharisees, with anger and he grieved at the hardness of their hearts. We'll see tonight that the book omits a genealogy and there's no Christmas story. It's very quick paced. The word immediately is used 42 times. Now let's get to the setting. The setting is Rome. Mark is in Rome. Peter had been in Rome. Nero is Caesar. He is responsible for the martyrdom of Paul as well as Peter in approximately 64 AD. Paul, being a Roman citizen, would be beheaded. It would be against Roman law for him to be crucified. Peter, on the other hand, tradition tells us, was crucified upside down. Historians highlight that it was during Nero's reign 
that there, were a, there, were way, there was a wave of persecution that the early church experienced. And, and that's what I want to talk about. Mark is writing to persecuted Christians. That is, when you became a Christian at this time, you knew that you would suffer loss. You might, might lose your marriage. You, you might lose your family. You might lose a job or a business. And so his words, his words are intended to encourage the Christians or the church in Rome. Again, his gospel is fast-paced. It's a mosaic of Jesus' ministry with less teaching and discourse and more action. And then lastly, I believe it was intended to be read. So, you know, sometimes you're, uh, I am sensitive to hearing. I wear hearing aids. And so I, I'm sensitive to, to background sound. Um, you take out my hearing aids and I'm pretty happy. I, don't, I, I hear, but I don't hear like I should hear. But if, if I were to join you at a meal in a restaurant, I would, I would hear the background music. I, I might not be able to hear everything you're saying because you're in front of me uh, for two reasons. One, because my food's going to take precedence over you, unfortunately. And, and the other thing is because I can hear conversations behind me. It's just the way it is. I, I also go to the gym. There's usually music playing, which is enjoyable while you're suffering. I'm sure that's kind of the intent behind it, that it's to bring you a sense of relief while you're perspiring and trying to kill yourself. Um, the, The interesting thing about music to me is that it resides in my subconscious, that it stirs emotion. that it brings back memories. Sometimes when I have the opportunity to listen to classic rock, it takes me back to high school, which was a long time ago. Or it takes me to the beach. We used to have these, these portable radios that we would take down to the beach and we would listen to a radio station. I know this is alien to some of you. I'm sorry. I can remember lyrics to songs from 50 years ago and have a great challenge finding my keys. But I also would suggest that music could be subtle. I would suggest that for some of you who enjoy going to movies, that if we were to remove the soundtrack, the experience would be lacking. It's as though the subtleness of the, of the soundtrack carries, carries you through the movie as well as what's being portrayed upon the screen, the actors and the, the dialogue and the interaction. I, I can't tell you how many times we're watching a movie, Wanda, and, I, and, and there's not a word being, being said. And, and, and I, for some reason, when these, you know, when these people go into these dark warehouses, I go like, turn on a light. You know, there, there's danger here. And the, but even the sound is, is communicating to you that, that somebody's going to die. And I'm like, turn on the light. At least you can. Anyways. In the same way, Jesus is coming. Jesus' coming is carried along by the theme of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's carried along. It moves the gospel downstream. When you hear the kingdom of God, I want you to think about his reigning presence that has invaded human history. 
that when Jesus came, whether it was in the incarnation as a child, as a, as a baby, or, or moving, moving into his ministry, that he is invading our world, that he has intentionally come into our world for the purpose of changing everything forever. Jesus wants to change your life. He wants to change your eternity because it is your greatest need this evening. But he will not invade unless you say, be my king, I will serve you. It has less to do, this kingdom, less to do with territory and fixed borders and more to do with God's rule in our lives. When Jesus encounters demonic activity, we see God's kingdom overtaking the kingdom or the rule of darkness. Jesus is coming. His establishing of his rule was first announced by a man we call John the Baptist. Look in your Bibles, if you will, as we experience the king, but first we experience the king's messenger. Verses 1 through 5. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This, is the, this would be Mark's title for his gospel. This is what Mark would want his readers to initially, remember, initially know. Remember I said we're go, he's going to move quickly. It's fast-paced. As it was written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger, that's John. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then we have some commentary in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, in the wilderness, in the wilderness. In the wilderness, John, the messenger comes. In the wilderness, Jesus will be baptized. And in the wilderness, Jesus will be tested by the devil. In the wilderness, in the desert. And proclaiming a baptism of repentance, there's that word again, for the forgiveness of sins. In all the country of Judea, in all of Jerusalem, were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan. What were they doing? They were confessing their sins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, speaks to God. Listen to it. It speaks to God initiating, beginning an opportunity for you and for me to be forgiven of our sins and enter into God's kingdom and to have Jesus as our king. This is the opportunity that's laid before you right now. It's a change of citizenships. Paul says in Colossians that we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his precious son. Listen, this is the most important thing for you and I to know in this moment and at this time that the king has come and that he has established his kingdom now. And the kingdom of God now is within the hearts of men and of women. And tonight you have the opportunity to allow King Jesus to rule and reign in your life. And it will change your life forever. I didn't say it will make it easier. It may make it harder. It may make it more difficult. But this is who he is. And this is your opportunity to have Jesus be your king. This, we see God initiating this when, he, when an angel visited Zacharias, who's John the Baptist's father in the temple. 
We see God initiating this when Mary pondered the possibility of Gabriel's words. He has come into our world to change us. So John the Baptist, his baptism, John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, Jesus' test in the desert anticipates Peter's confession in Mark chapter 8, 29, when Peter says, you are the Christ, which was revealed to him, we're told, by this Father in heaven. All of this anticipated, it's moving towards, again, that current is moving towards the moment that Peter says, you are the Christ. As well as the confession of a Roman centurion. Here you have a Jew, Peter, confessing Jesus as a Christ, and in Mark 15, 39, you have a Gentile confessing, truly, this man was the Son of God. And he does so at Jesus' death. Peter says in the shadow of watching a, a pagan worship, you are the Christ, when Jesus asked him, who do men say that I am? And you have a hardened Roman soldier who has participated and watched crucifixion for many, many years. And yet when he watches the way Jesus dies, he says, truly, this is the Son of God. It's amazing that Mark captures these these pieces of a mosaic and presents them to you and I tonight. For you see, my friends, Mark's words demand that we believe in Jesus. We have the word gospel, which you know means good news or glad tidings. It is the announcement of God's reign through God's king. Let me read to you from Isaiah 40. This was prophesied to Israel while Israel was in captivity. While Israel was in Babylon, they were waiting to be released so they could return. They could return home. And the great prophet says in Isaiah 40, verse 9, Go up to the mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. That's the gospel. Herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Listen to these words. Behold your God. Behold the Lord comes with might and his arms rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. There is good news God is sending his king, and he will come. He will restore what was lost. When this prophecy was uttered, Jerusalem was devastated. And yet there is in your heart tonight the need and the desire for someone, Jesus, to tend his flock like a shepherd, to gather the lambs in his arms, and to carry them in his bosom. You and I long to have Jesus shepherd our lives. You know that the word Jesus, the name Jesus is the Greek, Greek rendering of Yeshua, which means Je- Je- Yahweh saves. Christ, on the other hand, is a title. It is also Greek for Messiah or literally anointed one. Mark is declaring that Jesus is the anticipated Savior 
or deliverer, which suggests, which suggests that we need saving, that you and I need deliverance. Just press pause for a minute. Do we believe that? Do we believe that we need to be rescued and saved from our sins? What do you think? Do we believe that? Do we acknowledge that? Do we understand that? And that the only answer is a king who would come and serve us by dying on a cross. Do we believe that? Do we understand that? Caesar claimed divinity, but Mark is saying here is the real king. Remember, he was in Rome when he wrote this. In contrast, a man sat on a throne and declared himself to be God. The other, Jesus, was destined for death on a cross. So moving along a little more quickly, Mark takes us to the wilderness. You don't want to go to the wilderness. You don't want to go to the desert unless you have to. But that is where God chose for the voice, for the messenger, to to proclaim the message. John's ministry draws people from the region of Judea and from the city of Jerusalem from comfort, from home. They're being drawn from their homes, from their jobs. They're being drawn away from Jerusalem, the temple, the worship. If there was anything that the Jews had confidence in, it was in Jerusalem. If they knew where their king would reign from, it was in Jerusalem. The Jews in Judea in particularly felt more Jewish than those who were from the Galilee. So people head east. They head east and then they head down. It's important for you to know that Jerusalem sits at about 2,500 foot elevation. But the Jordan Valley is 696 feet below sea level. Can you imagine? All of these people heading east and down. It's important to know that the wilderness has significance to those who made their way to see John or to hear John. It mirrors a nation's eastward exodus being delivered from Egypt. And so they moved, after the ten plagues, they were released and they moved towards the east. Forty years later, they would be east of the land of promise, and they would head west. John's voice and his message drew them east. They would be baptized in the River Jordan, listen, and then they would return westward. A nation moved east out of Egypt, westward into the land of promise, At John's coming, a people move eastward, are baptized, and then they return differently than when they left. Do you see the significance of what's taking place? The desert is dangerous. This weekend, my wife Wanda and I are going to head out to Phoenix. It's a a pleasant drive for me. I, I, I like to drive and think. I need to drive and then think, not think and then drive. I mean, I need to be engaged in the trip. And, and the route is in my mind, as are the stops. 
the, the rest areas and fuel and, 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 you know, the possibility of stopping if we need to, it's here in my mind, but we head east. We'll go over the, the mountains here. We pass Acorn, the Acorn Casino. Hi, guys, how you doing? Shoo. And then begin to drop down towards El Centro. And then the road begins to smooth out, get long. I love the canals. You're heading out of California. You see the, the canals and how green and lush it is there in contrast with the desert. There's a point in, when I can look over to the right and see the, 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 the wall or the, the barricade between the United States and Mexico, and then we head into Yuma. But, but the difference, the change going from I mean, Southern California, right? We're not as green, but we're, you know, we, we, we have our contrast. And the elevation and then the dropping down, exactly what these folks are experiencing. But it is in the desert where things like water and food are scarce. Now, remember, they're leaving their homes. They're leaving the city. They're leaving security. The desert is dangerous. John's voice breaks 400 years of silence. His message about Jesus stirs expectation of a people who, back to Isaiah chapter 40, anticipated the coming of a Messiah. And they had been speaking of the possibility of this Messiah coming for over 400 years. And then God's timetable brings John. His father will enter to do his service in the temple, and while he's there carrying out his responsibility, an angel reveals himself to him. And he begins to speak to this elderly senior citizen about having a son. And that, my friends, I want you to see this with clarity. That is God opening the door to you. That is God's invitation to you and to me that the coming of the messenger, his message and his person, is an invitation for us to pay attention. We need, we need the Baptist, John. So the scriptures that, that, that Mark presents us with are from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah 40, back to Isaiah 40, verse 3, promising a messenger. Isaiah 40 says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In the ancient world, when a when a monarch or a king was going to travel through his kingdom or through his realm, he would send a representative who would go to each of the communities, each of the villages that he would visit, and they would say, the king is coming, prepare yourself. And then while he was traveling, if there were any road work that needed to be done, anything that would impede the king's uh, moving uh, through his kingdom, that would be repaired. That, be, that would be fixed. The messenger would notify the towns along the way that the king is coming and make sure that the road was passable. In verse 4, we read John baptized to illustrate people turning away from sin in order to receive Messiah. And so for you and me, the Spirit, the Spirit of God brings conviction of sin not condemnation, in order for you to feel bad about your sin, but conviction in order to give you the hope of forgiveness of your sin.
And once we receive him, listen, this is important. He gives us, the Spirit gives us the power to say no to sin. He frees us from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. John's arrival challenges a corrupt religious system. Josephus wrote that John was a righteous man. His ministry lasted a little more than a year. Estimations are that he baptized hundreds of thousands of people. Again, far from Jerusalem, the temple, and all things pertaining to the religious system. I'm going to head, head towards the barn here, but I want you to think about this. John was a prophet in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That is, he ministered with the same appearance. We'll see that in a moment. That he ministered with the same attitude towards sin and authority. In Luke chapter 7, verse 24, John is imprisoned and he had sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he was the Messiah. And in verse 24, again, Luke 7, it says, When John's messengers or disciples had gone, that is, to return to John with the report, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts or palaces. What then, a third time, what then did you go to see? And then he asked the question, a prophet? Did you go to see a prophet? In 400 years, you have not heard a prophet. Did you go to see a prophet? The significance of this is that a prophet would speak God's word with power and authority. Did you go all that way out into the desert to hear a prophet, to hear God's word through a human voice? Did you go? Think about it. Did you go? Maybe we'd say, when you read your Bible, do you really believe that you're reading the Word of God? Because if you really went to see a prophet, you would obey what he said. And if you really read your Bible, you would obey what it says. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When he says that none is greater than John, he's speaking of the totality of all the Old Testament prophets because of his role and his function as the messenger. But again, when he says that that any of those who are in the kingdom of God, underneath God's rule or uh, his realm, is greater than John, it speaks of the new covenant. John had the spirit upon him as a prophet. You have the spirit within you as God's child. Let's go ahead and close out in verses 6 through 8. The Baptist, the man, and the message. First we begin in verse 6 with the man. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now the message. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Listen to these words. Verse 8 is critical. I baptize you with water, but he 
The one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Listen to what he says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He, the one who is coming after me, the king, the servant king, the one who I'm not worthy to, go, to bow down and untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You need, you need to know the significance of this. The Spirit will come upon you. John was a Nazarite. He was set apart to the Lord from his birth. As a matter of fact, when Mary, Jesus' mother, both Mary and Elizabeth are expecting Mary, uh, Elizabeth probably about six months longer than Mary, but when Mary comes into Elizabeth's home and she greets her, basically says shalom, God's blessing upon this house, we're told that John within Elizabeth's womb is filled with the Holy Spirit, is filled with the Holy Spirit and leaps for joy. The very first testimony Jesus present in his mother, John present in his mother, and the prophet testifies to Jesus' identity from even before he was born. I don't know if that gets you going, but it sure gets me going. He testifies as to who Jesus is. My friends, today, in this moment, in this hour, we need voices to testify as to who Jesus is. You and I need to say that our lives have been changed and transformed by the king who would come and die for me. Listen, this is critical. This is important. This is, this is uh, not to get too figurative or too poetic here. This is as the sun's coming up, the flower opens up and tracks with the sun across the sky. You and I, with Jesus, we open up and we track with him. My friends, it is the moment for the church to proclaim that Jesus is my king. Jesus is my savior. So that he was a Nazarite. That meant from birth, no grapes, no raisin. And when he turned 21, no wine. There was also no shaving, no haircuts, no razors, no scissors. It wouldn't bother me one bit. He was a man of the wilderness. His diet tells us that he lived off the land, honey and grasshoppers. But John was the voice of verse 3 because he was a voice because he heard God's voice. And you and I could say, well, Danny, Danny, this is historic. Don't get carried away. No, within the pages of Scripture, within the pages of the Gospel, in the same way that he spoke to that generation, John speaks to our generation. And John says, prepare your hearts for the king. Prepare your lives for the king because he's coming. The first time, no, he's coming a second time. And are you prepared to meet your king? His words were God's words because he was a prophet. Camel's hair meant that fabric that he wore was from camel's hair. It was, again, something that more to do with his appearance. The leather belt around his waist connected John to Elijah in the minds of Mark's Jewish readers. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Mark highlights John's humility where he says, After me comes one who is mightier than I. The strap of his sandals, whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
This was the role of the lowest servant in the home, that his guests would come in. He would come, he would kneel down, he would loosen the sandals, and he would wash the feet, listen, and then he would take some olive oil, and he would refresh the visitor, and then the host would embrace and kiss the guest. But John says, I am not worthy to be the lowest level servant in comparison to Jesus. Humility. Do you know that that so menial was the task that John is describing that a Jewish servant would never fulfill the role? John says, I'm not worthy. In John chapter 1, John's the apostle. Chapter 1, verse 29, almost done. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me or above me, because he was before me. That is, because he existed before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained upon him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, that is God, the Father, said to me, he on, he on, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God, reference to Jesus' deity, John prepares a nation to receive their Messiah. My friends, have you listened to the prophet's voice and received Jesus? Have you experienced the forgiveness of sin? Have you received the Spirit who gives us the power to say no to sin And yes to God, my friends, listen to me. This is the most important question you can answer in your life. For all of eternity, all of eternity depends on what you do with the messenger's Messiah. I believe that when John says, and I am done, But when John says that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, that in contrast to John taking individuals and taking them into the water and raising them up again, that Jesus himself takes those who trust in him and immerses them in the Spirit. And that when we come up, I I liken it to this, and you're taking a white garment maybe a towel or a sheet, and you take it over to a a container, maybe a vat of purple dye, and you allow it to to be submerged below the dye, and then you, you take it and you lift it up. It looks the same in its dimension, but the color has been changed. You and I have been stained with the Holy Spirit. That is God's character and nature now resides within us. God dwells within us. In Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. By word of application, this week, I want you to think about this as you, as, as we worship, and we're going to sing some songs, and there's opportunity for, to come and to take the communion elements and to celebrate communion uh, on your own during these last three songs. There's also be opportunity to come forward to receive prayer. But I would ask you to think about these three questions, well, three statements, two of them are questions. How would you respond to John's call to repent? Don't, don't come to church and leave church without considering John's message personally. Secondly, think of some ways that you would like the Spirit to help you. Maybe you're not as dependent upon the Spirit as you would like to be. And so as you leave here tonight, Spirit, help me with this. And then lastly, have you been baptized? The baptism that you and I experience is different than John's baptism, for his was a baptism of repentance. The baptism that you and I would experience is an identification with Christ. That is, we identify with his death, his burial, going into the water, his going into the tomb, and with his resurrection. There's a distinction. They're different. There's symbolism. But have you been baptized? Baptism to me, maybe it's a little different to you or, 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 or the denominational, denominational affiliation you have, but baptism to me is a statement that I identify with Jesus. He is my Lord and my Savior, and all those who are watching are witnesses. You are already born again when you go into the water. This is an outward statement of an inward reality for you. Let's go ahead and pray. So, Heavenly Father, tonight, we listen to the Baptist. We listen to the messenger of the great King. And tonight, Lord, we pray that you would minister to our hearts and our minds, that you would draw us through repentance, Lord, through, through repentance to experience the reality of Jesus becoming our Lord, Jesus becoming our King. Nothing that is religious, but something that is, will transform us inwardly and eternally. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.